Welcome to the Work Camper Show, a podcast devoted to helping you discover how to finance your RV travel dreams. I'm Steve Anderson, the president of Work Camper News. Each one of our episodes will either introduce you to people who are already living the RV lifestyle or to opportunities to work short-term jobs. You'll also learn how to hit the road the right way and make the most of every opportunity. Now let's turn over today's show to your host, Greg Gerber. Thank you, Steve. One of the most important decisions RVers have to make when they jump into a full-time RV lifestyle is deciding where to call home. Today, I'll be speaking with two lawyers from Texas who are very experienced in domicile issues. Today's episode is sponsored by Work Camper News. With its diamond and platinum membership tools, Work Camper News is much more than just a job listing website. When you put the tools of this professional service into action, you'll find out just how easy it can be to turn your work camping dreams into reality. The one-year memberships open the door to a one-stop shop for all things work camping. Being the original resource for work camping, you'll find the largest number of job listings, be able to connect with a community of work campers, and view resources compiled by experts who've been enjoying the RV lifestyle for many years. If you're serious about leading a successful and enjoyable work camping lifestyle, then a Diamond or Platinum membership is for you. You can even get started with a free 30-day trial by visiting www.workcamper.com forward slash trial. Embark on new adventures today with the support of Work Camper News behind you. Sean Loring is an attorney who is licensed in Texas and California. The former CEO of Escapees, he is also an experienced financial planner. His partner, Susie Adams, has been licensed for 40 years in Texas. Together, they work at Loring Law, and issues surrounding domicile is an area they are frequently asked to address. The 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution gives people the freedom to travel freely between states, but each state has rules about what it means to be a resident for domicile purposes. The problem is there is no clear-cut definition of what a domicile means but it is most often accepted to mean the place you intend to return to when you're done traveling. However, if a problem ever arises, actions speak louder than intentions. For example, where do you receive mail? Where are your vehicles licensed and which state issued your driver's license? Do you own any real property? Where do you vote? After you die, where will your will be probated? Where do you pay taxes? When you aren't traveling, where do you spend a lot of time? Where are your doctors located? In which state is your business registered? There are a whole bunch of questions that go into formally declaring a domicile state, and the answers go well beyond which state has the lowest taxes. Your domicile state will often determine rates you pay on health insurance and vehicle insurance, too. To tell us more about the seemingly simple concept of domicile with its inherent consequences, please welcome attorney Sean Loring and Susie Adams to the show. Thanks for joining me today, Susie and Sean. I really appreciate the time. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and your law company. My name is Solid Morning. I'm a licensed attorney in two states, California and Texas. Prior to finding my way into law, I had a career in, in finance and have operated a law firm and a financial planning firm sort of in connection with one another. I am also the former CEO and attorney for the Escapees RV Club. My name is Susie Adams. I've been licensed to practice law in Texas for 
As of the spring 2023, it'll be 40 years. So this is an anniversary for me and my classmates, so to speak. About seven years ago, I happened to be on a bicycle trip that Sean Warren was also on. And I had just left a job and we started talking while we were riding. And by the end of the bicycle ride, he said, why don't you come to work for my law firm? To which my husband was on his own bike and I said, James, I got a job. It <laughs> <laughs> was a great moment. And then I said, Sean, what's, what exactly? I've been practicing law a long time. I've got a lot of trial experience, but what, what's the firm about? And he said, one of our biggest issues is domicile. Now, domicile is a subject that takes about half an hour of one class in law school. And so my thought was, okay, got that. What else? But I had no idea that in the world of full-time RVers, that the whole world of Delosal would just be exploding. So now for five or yeah, six years, I've been writing articles for the Escapees magazine on the whole subject of Delosal. I can promise you every issue, there's something new to talk about in that. And so we can, we can speak about it as long as you want to hear about it, because here's some bunch of little issues that come up. What is domicile? What's it mean? And why is it important to our viewers? Domicile, there's not one clear accepted definition of domicile, but the sort of working definition of domicile is where you intend to permanently return even after a temporary absence. And I hit that word intend with some gravity because your intentions are somewhat malleable. You know, I can close my eyes right now and intend to be from Wisconsin. We were just talking about Wisconsin, right? And so that could be my fervent intent is to be from Wisconsin. But when we're looking at domicile, uh, what a court's going to do is they're going to look at factors. So it's not just you closing your eyes or me closing my eye and dreaming up what I intend. It's domicile expressed through my actions, something demonstrable. And there is a def there is a difference. These two terms get get a lot on the internet, and sadly in in law and cases. But there's a distinction between a domicile and a residence. Right, that domicile again is where you intend to permanently return. A residence is merely where you put your head down. It just in broad strokes, you could have a residence on every street in America. But you have one and only one domicile. What I'm curious about, Susie, is how would a court look at this and start to find those factors? Now, that's partly why do we care? Because the fact is, is there's a domicile that determines where you have your driver's license, where you register your vehicles, where you vote, which has become a big issue. And well, let's see, what are the other ones? Where you die. You will be probated in the place you call home, that domicile. So the court gets involved. The early courts got involved because of inheritance. And so the whole issue of domicile goes back to at least England in the 1700s. It's okay if this person died here, but they called their home here. Inheritance laws might change from one location to another. So they would fight for one location over the other. Still the same thing. Divorce is a big place yeah. where domicile, there's a lot of case law. But surprisingly, with all of the full-time RVers, now it's also an issue for full-time RVers as to where they call home. 
and the courts have gotten involved because especially for tax problems, the local state will say, we think you live here and you owe state taxes. And the person will say, no, I live in, let's say, Texas, where there is no income tax. And then you'll have to prove it. So that's probably the biggest thing that comes up. Money. One question that I hear a lot from our viewers is, how is it even legal? For example, I'm a Wisconsin resident or was, and now I'm going to get in my RV and I'm going to be a full-time RVer, but I've decided that my domicile is going to be South Dakota. How is that even legal for me to be able to do that? That's a fantastic question. I'll take a stab at it and then Susie will come to the rescue. The short answer is that you have, by operation of law, you have to be connected somewhere. Are you a citizen of the United States? But you also are, in fact, a making a connection to a state. And arguably, we've had discussions with our local district judge, one of our local district judges, that you're also making a connection at your county level. Okay. And you have one and only one domicile. It's really important at any given time. You're a citizen of the United States, and that affords you certain rights and privileges. And then you've attached to, let's say, text that we're, we're hailing from today. And so you're availing yourself of the privileges and protections of the laws of Texas by claiming that is your domicile and further down the line to the county level. There's a little piece of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution that guarantees the right to travel between the states. There again, there's not a tremendous amount of case law on it, but there are a few cases that say that you have a constitutionally protected right to move around the country. Make, right. make me sound smarter than I am. I, no, that, I, that's right. But the part about it being legal, let's say it's South Dakota, there are two parts to that. South Dakota has their own rules about how you can become a South. And they actually, South Dakota brags that you can be there for 24 hours and you can call yourself a South Dakota. That may not work. If you've got a house back in Wisconsin, you go to Wisconsin all the time, you spend all your time there, but pretend your home is South Dakota. We've got a lot of case law that says you're going to lose. If you call South Dakota your home, it means that you have to make it the place where it's like your base. And especially if you're in an RV, right. you've got to show people, even though I travel all over, this is the place I come back to for everything for my doctors on Medicare, Social Security, everything comes out of that base. And if you say my home South Dakota, but I'm gonna I'm gonna declare a homestead for my home in Wisconsin, then you can't say South Dakota. But under the law, everybody has the right to call someplace home. And this has been litigated. If South Dakota, if that's your only place you can call home because you've taken your home with you and you have no other place that you actually have situated as a home and then south dakota says sorry you can't vote you can't do this you can't do that there's a moment where it's, i get to call someplace home and then and in the world of the escapees world the local folks about 20 years ago brought a lawsuit saying we don't think these people who kind of waltz in and waltz out can possibly legally call livingston home and it was litigated and the court it was went to the Court of Appeals, and they said, yes, you get the right to call this place out. So that's that's our best actual precedent legally. But underneath that is everybody has the right to call someplace home yeah. as American citizens. Sean, you had mentioned earlier intention to return home. So I leave or I'm 
a Wisconsin resident and I hit my, the RV full time for a couple of years. And my intention is always to go back home and I still have family back there and I do go back there to visit and all of that. But I make my, while I'm traveling, I decide that I want to live in North Carolina because it's just a beautiful state and I fell in love with it. And so I want to move my home from Wisconsin to North Carolina, North Carolina. Is there a problem with doing that for people to change their minds? No, there is not a problem changing their mind. And again, I could close my eyes and this very moment fervently believe that I am from North Carolina, but the rest of the world can't peer into my mind and determine the sincerity with which I've now made this select. So the outside world, courts, other government institutions are going to look to the manifestations of that intent. And Susie hit on some of them. The courts are empowered, by the way, to look at anything in your life they want. There's a case where the help, the determination turned on a tennis club membership. And wasn't there a case where they were looking at hunting and fishing licenses? It's that it's basically the court will dig into the fact, Pauline, the case that Sean was talking about was a Minnesota Minnesota brought a lawsuit against a man who claimed Florida was his home. And they said, no, you're, you've got a house up here in Minnesota. Well, he had a house also in Florida. And so it was back and forth. And then he said, but I've quit my tennis membership in Minnesota and joined a club in Florida. The court said, you can't play tennis remotely. You must be a Floridian. Voila, he wins. But the problem with the North Carolina idea is some states make it very hard to become citizens domicile in that state. And if you, the, one of the keys to states like Texas, South Dakota, and Florida is that they make that process pretty easy. North Carolina is not such an easy state. If you have a house there, that's one thing. But if you're just saying, I want to call North Dakota, North Carolina home, what address would you use? You got to have, and then you look at the rules of North Carolina and say, oh, to become a North Carolinian, then you have to go through these steps. And a lot of times it's, you've got to have a real address. You can't, you can't have a mail address. There's about 10 factors that get examined with some regularity. Susie hit on a lot of them, but let me just try to re-articulate that. Mail forwarding address. It seems to be the connection, the nexus of a lot of other factors. So you have to get a mail forwarding address somewhere, a driver license, right? If you're an RV or ostensibly you have an RV, so vehicle registration becomes a touch for folks to whom this applies. Voter registration is Susie was talking about ownership in land. Now it's not definitive. You don't have to own land or lease an apartment. You don't have to have a connection to land, but we have seen that when people start to make connections, like you were just saying, Susie, with the guy who had the house down in Florida or somebody connecting to North Carolina's house, your ownership or your treatment of land may affect your domicile. You are entitled to vacation homes. You are entitled to have rental properties without change domicile. So those are some of the easily identified touch points that courts look at in establishing or determining rather a domicile. Some of the softer ones are your professional connections. Let's use North Carolina as the example. Okay, if you earnestly are going to make North Carolina your domicile, maybe your doctor, your dentist, your financial planner, your attorney, your accountant, mechanic, maybe they're all from that same county 
or thereabouts in North Carolina. You don't have to go and change every single connection that you have. If your cousin is your accountant and you want to keep that relationship, by all means, keep it. But your professional relationships, we talked about tennis clubs, but other social connections. So religious institutions, community service organizations like Rotary, Lions, Elks, et cetera. Susie talked about your estate planning documents. That's, a, that's another easy way to evidence that you are domiciled somewhere. Go have your wills and trusts and powers of attorney updated. Come in and start with the laws of the new state. I would think um, insurance would factor into that at some point too. Yes. It has to. Yeah. Uh, your vehicle insurance and your health insurance will come from the state yes. and the county that you call home. In, in fact, you, Greg, you're hitting on it. It's that was going to be the next one is your business, your, what I would what call your important business papers. So your insurance policies, your investment accounts, your bank accounts should be reflective in some way of your domicile. You need to be careful there. There's going to be some crossover into the Patriot and go on there, but just be mindful of when you're putting an address down on a bank account, it's discoverable. And I would say lastly, and this is very common in the RV lifestyle, is what we in the biz call personality, but it's basically stuff. You have a Sticks and Burt's home, right? You've got, you've got a Sticks and Burt's home and the dream of becoming a full-time RVer. You sell the Sticks and Bricks. You buy the tin can with wheels. Your grandmother's antique hutch is not coming on the road with you. You're not strapping it to the roof like you're the clam bits. That has to be somewhere. And where that antique hutch goes creates a presumption that you're coming back to get it. You can overcome that presumption. But again, just being mindful that you have stuff that is indeed your RV that connects you. Is that, did I miss any of the yeah. ones there? Well, okay. well, that's good. Very good. So with all those factors to take into consideration, is there a perfect state for domicile? Susie Adams. Susie is there Adams. a perfect state of domicile? I suggest anyone does is look at where you're spending the majority of your time. If you're, we'll go back to you, Greg, with your place in Wisconsin. Let's say you've got a place in Wisconsin, you hit the road, you don't know, you know you want to maybe move somewhere, but you don't know where. Keep the place in Wisconsin as your domicile while you do your own exploration and see which place, which part of the country you come back to, where you can see yourself. That's where you're going to have your, everything we've talked about, that's where you need to have the driver's license registration. And I suggested the people to Put together just like a spreadsheet. Here are the four or five or 10 states that I'd like to call home. And then just start checking them off and make sure that you're not just jumping into this. Oh, I've got to be a South Dakotan because you're talking to other RVers. You say, yeah, you got to be a South Dakotan because it may not fit that particular family. And that's what I'm most wary of because especially RVers, but probably everybody, they all have views on what you should do. And they will tell you with great certainty that the only answer is to do whatever they did. And then you look back and you go, the difference is that couple was retired. You've got kids in school or that you're homeschooling. Or you just go into, no, this is, there's not one size that fits all. It's very much a very personal question. Yeah. The way you call home. Definitely personal. Yeah. If there was one clear answer, this whole conversation would be about 30 seconds long. We'd say, everybody go to New Jersey, and that would be the end of the deal. But as Susie very articulately noted, there is no perfect answer. It's a very personal. With that said, we do recommend spreadsheeting some of this out. Because some of it, that decision is going to be determined, or at least 
heavily influenced by we'll call financial or economic factors. So there are some key categories that tend to get evaluated with break frequency. One being taxes. Taxes cut two ways. You have income tax and sales and use tax. So what are the reasons why Texas, Florida, and South Dakota bubble to the top of a lot of people's lists? No state income tax. Okay. Now, if you're going to go out and buy an RV, and that's a big purchase, sales and use taxes, they're beyond your mind. Because you could spend tens of thousands of dollars in sales and use tax. Now, some of this tax conversation changes if you're operating a business from the road. And again, we can spin off and do you know, a whole, whole segment on taxation. But one thing is you might full of taxes. Greg, you had mentioned insurance. Insurance is another one. And that cuts, again, a couple of different ways. Vehicle insurance. Yes. Obviously, we're insuring very expensive, large type vehicles and health insurance. Some people are of the age where they're on Medicaid, I'm sorry, Medicare. Other folks aren't. And so procuring health insurance becomes a challenge or something that needs to be, that, that, that you need to be mindful of. And your insurance rates are going to change county to county, maybe the zip code to zip code. Right. Another factor, this is, this is one that, that doesn't get a lot of attention, but Susie and I try to focus on it in our lectures, asset protection. Okay. You're bounding down the road. You've got, I don't know, 30,000 pounds worth of vehicle behind you. And yet, and you hit somebody, odds are you're going to win. Okay. They turn around and sue you. What can they get? And some of that is a function of the state that you're domiciled in. Certain states will protect IRAs, 401ks, that's that ill. When people are living in sticks and bricks homes and they own those homes, most states will offer some level of homestead protection, which means I could sue you till the cows come home and I can't take your home. Susie, I don't know if you've come across anything in your travels, but in my research, there are no states that protect, that will homestead protect an RV. Have you come across it? So same scenario, right? You get the person, they turn around and sue you. Can they get your RV? Maybe we're back to an insurance question and solving that way. Maybe we're solving with legal instruments. There are solutions to this, but it should be something that, that the audience is mindful of. One thing that surprised me when I was full-time RVing is I was an Arizona resident and I maintained that as my domicile when I was on the road. But the big problem was that because I was living in the Phoenix area, the Department of Motor Vehicles required me to get an emissions test every year for my motorhome, which meant that I had to drive back to Phoenix before the license expired to get a silly emissions test, and then I could go back out and continue my journey. And there was no way around that. They were looking for me to come in there for that emissions test within a couple of weeks after I should have had it done. So that was something that I had never, ever considered when I was just starting out. And that's right, because here in Texas, there's an inspection requirement on all vehicles. And some people say that I'm going to choose Florida or South Dakota because I don't want to have to come to Texas once a year for that inspection. Two things about that. Number one, the inspection can get, they do allow you to wait till you're back in the state. So there's some room there. But the other, when I hear somebody say, I'm not going to choose Texas because then I'd have to come back every year. I'm like, well, then you probably better choose a state that you really see yourself coming back to because don't choose a state that says that you don't have to come back because that ruins your domicile. Yeah. I think Susie just hit on what I consider to be 
the most important point in all of domicile. If this, if the place that you're choosing to domicile from is not part of your normal story arc, don't pick it. A state could look perfect on paper, hit every single financial economic box that you want to come true. But if you never go there, don't pick it. You will futz up your domicile. For example, South Dakota, which says you can only be there. You only need to come there one day and that becomes your state and your residence and your domicile and you can get your vehicles licensed and all that other kind of stuff. But if you never go back there. Yeah. And the deal with South Dakota, that they are luring and they seem to be luring a lot of people to the state. But during the pandemic, many of those people were out of work and they got to have employment compensation. And that comes out of the state that you call home. So once these folks then tried to collect from South Dakota money for the fact that they were out of work and they were calling South Dakota home, all of a sudden South Dakota said, for you guys, this is not home. And so I was, wait, South Dakota, you just, yes, we'll let you be here as long as you don't cost us anything. But the second the pandemic hit, these people were saying, hey, you said we could call this home and now you're saying you're not going to pay us any. It was like, okay, maybe new rules. So even there, it's a problem. And the flip side, states who love taxes, who say, okay, you are a resident of our state, but now you declare yourself to be a South Dakotan, we're still coming after you for your vehicle registrations and all that other kind of stuff and your income tax because you have an apartment here, you've got your storage facility, you've got your bank accounts here, your mail is forwarded here, etc. You're coming back here regardless of what that says. Which leads to another question is what do you do once you make a selection for domicile? Is there a form that you have to fill out to declare it or what happens? No, usually it really, the, I say the trigger point is when you turn in your driver's license from the other state and you get your new driver's license. It's not like you have to, that's your declaration to the world. It's, and then you register to vote, you do all these things that just basically say, this is now my goal. We don't have a universal form that people have to fill out to say, no, here's my domicile. It's, and because so much of the domicile, decision is based on intent, that's a case law question. That's not a statutory, oh, if you do these five things, you become a Texan. And that brings up the other point with South Dakota. There is a famous case where a family, they sold their house in Minnesota. They went down to South Dakota. They did the overnight. They got their driver's license, registered their vehicles. They did all those things. And then they left didn't have any connection to Minnesota or South Dakota for the next year and a half. Minnesota came after them and said, we believe you owe back taxes, income taxes. They said, no, we don't have anything in Minnesota any longer. And then Minnesota said, how much connection do you have to South Dakota? And because they had none, basically, besides that one day there, they lost. The family lost in Minnesota, got the back taxes plus interest plus penalties. So. It's important to really and truly don't choose a state out of the blue. Choose one that will be your access, your nexus, your, and of your cor- what else can we call it? The hub. And of course, get legal advice if there's any question before you make this decision. Absolutely. Yep. Super. Is there a good time to yeah, switch I mean, domiciles? The ideal time to do that? You uh, don't have to do it the day you leave on your RV trip, right? 
No, we encourage people to start getting their affairs in order months in advance, uh, upwards of six months in advance. You can start making these elections and you'll again, need to secure a mail forwarding address. There's a number of different companies that provide those mail services. That's going, you're going to have applications that you're going to have to work up for vehicle registration. You're going to have to make some appointments. Some professionals that you're going to want to meet with, again, an attorney, an accountant, a financial planner, whomever, your doctor in your new area, you might have to book those a month or two in advance. So we do encourage people to get a running start at this. There was, a, Greg, you had asked the question about forms, and I concur with what Susie said. This is not a check-the-box process. However, in the great state of Florida, and we have created something comparable for Texas, there are what are called affidavits of domicile or de declarations of domicile. And although it's not some magic elixir that's going to cure all of your domicile issues, it does, it's one more factor. It's one more point that you can refer back to that says, my intent is this. And you're making public record of your intention long before any litigation or events are being contemplated. And there's a little bit more of a trustworthiness that this was your intention because you're not doing any contemplation of getting out of some circumstance. I think the, I, I think the question I had was more about mid-year, end of year, start of the year kind of thing for tax purposes, oh, especially. Sorry. No, but the other consideration that you were talking about, that was important. But is it advantageous to start a new domicile at the start of a new year? as opposed to in the middle of the year? I think sometimes it is just because uh, counting-wise it's easier, but no. And it again, I think the trigger is that driver's license, but you can postpone the actual move till the beginning of the year. So maybe in the state you came from, you didn't spend, you pay 11 twelfths of income tax, and then the last month you maybe don't have to do it that way. However, I heard from Many people that accountants say, no, don't do a January 1st because that looks suspicious. <laughs> and that part, I don't know. I'm not an accountant. I don't know if that somehow triggers an audit or something. But as far as just paperwork goes, I think it's easier to do it at the first of the year. So the worst case situation is you have to file two income tax returns for two different well, states in one, one year. Yeah, you might file one if you go to a non-income state tax, non-income tax state. You might not have to file that second one, which also surprises people when they're Texans and they go, what do you, wait, what? I don't even have to file an income tax statement in Texas. And we say, what's an income state? She's still out of federal, but you don't have two state ones to file. Where can people get more information right. or talk to you if they have any questions? Okay. We will give people one-on-one -on -one personalized advice for free. Our phone number is 800-260-1615. Again, 800-260-1615. Or they can find us on the old interwebs at loringlaw.com. Loringlaw.com. Super. So we'll help as best we can. Very good. I really appreciate your time talking about the domicile question. It's something that is top of mind for many RVers, and it always seems to open up a can of worms. So having you folks available to answer their questions, I'm sure will be very helpful. 
I appreciate attorneys Sean Loring and Susie Adams from Loring Law for taking time to come on the show to talk about the domicile issue. It appears to be more complex than people realize, especially if they say their domicile is in one state, but everything else suggests they are intending to return to another state when they come off the road. Yet it is important to remember that a domicile decision is not permanent. You can fully intend to return to a specific state after you're done RVing, but on your journey, if you fall in love with one particular state, then nothing is going to stop you from moving there. In fact, it may be advantageous for you to declare that state to be your domicile even before you decide to stop traveling. If you own a sticks and bricks home, your domicile operations are generally limited. But if your home is on wheels and it moves from state to state, then you have more options. Yet both Sean and Susie admitted there is no perfect state for setting up a domicile. Each state has its own advantages and disadvantages based on your specific needs. For example, a business owner will have different needs than someone who is employed in short-term work camping jobs. People with a lot of assets will have more at stake from a domicile perspective than someone who can fit his or her entire life in the compartments of their RV. If you're ever in doubt about where to declare a domicile, Sean Loring or Susie Adams would be more than happy to advise you on the matter to make sure all your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed from a legal perspective. That way, if anything ever happens on the road, you won't be in an uncomfortable and expensive position of having to litigate what your domicile really is. Sean said his firm will give work campers personalized advice for free. So to connect with Sean or Susie, visit www.loringlaw.com. Today's episode is sponsored by The Dreamer's Journey. It's an online course and community produced by Work Camper News. Life is way too short to keep your dreams on hold, so don't be held back by fear because you were designed for more. Get started in the RV lifestyle the right way with this comprehensive guide. For just $29.95 for one year of access, Dreamers have unlimited viewing of 50 plus videos to learn things like what type of RV to buy, goal setting, how to budget for the adventure, developing a positive mindset, setting up a domicile, operating a small business on the road, plus everything about work camping, how to find the right job for you. Each video is 30 to 90 minutes long to give an in-depth coverage on every topic. There's no wrong time to get started, so for more information, visit www.rvdreamersjourney.com. That's all I have for this week's show. Next week, I'll be speaking with an employer from Michigan who needs work campers at several resorts in that state. I'll have more details on the next episode of The Work Camper Show. Thank you for listening.